Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started, but before we get into our study, let me uh, open us up in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that we can gather together as a church and talk about your word, and I pray that as we do that, you help us, that you help us to understand who you are, uh, what your word says, and the things that we need to do because of what it says. Um, Bless us today as we do that, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to spend a few weeks um, talking about rest and what the Bible says about rest, um, how we apply that to our own lives. I think it's easy for us to think about rest the wrong way. So we can, we can either neglect it, where we, we never do it. So I've heard people say before, I only take vacations if it's for a missions trip, or they, they just work seven days a week and never rest. Or you can go all the way to the other side, where you're more like the sluggard that's described in Proverbs, where all they want to do is rest, and they don't want to work, so they end up in poverty and need. So you've got these two extremes where, you know, you either don't rest or all you want to do is rest. And we know that those aren't, those aren't the biblical ideas of how we should rest. So it's, it's somewhere in between um, as far as how we should rest. Um, we know that we need to rest from work. But how much? You know, the, the Israelites were commanded to rest one day a week. Um, Is that something that we should do? Is that prescribed for us? Um, Do we have to rest at all? How much if we do? You know, these are all questions that that we can ask Scripture and and come away with with an answer. And so that's what we want to do over the next few weeks. Um, And really, this is what I want to convince you of as far as what, what rest is. So rest is God's provision to us for our weariness, whether physical or emotional or spiritual. So God gives us rest from work, from war, turmoil, misfortune, worry, and sin's result. So as you look through scripture, these are all things that God can give us rest from. And these are actually provisions from God for us. So that, as we go through the next few weeks, by the end, we'll come back to this definition. And then we'll also really apply everything that we've gone through from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible um, to our lives. What principles can we take away? How do we think about rest in our own lives? So that's kind of the plan. Um, but before we get into today, which today will really be just an introduction, so we won't get into the actual study of rest, what we're going to do is, for about the first half, talk about what a faithful topical Bible study looks like. So as I'm doing this on my own for this, I thought it would be helpful if we all kind of have a, an outline or a step-by-step process. If we want to do this for ourselves, how do we do it? And I hope that's helpful. And then secondly, we'll go over like a brief discussion about work. So what is work? Because it's so related to rest. We kind of need to have that that, um, foundation before we get into talking about rest. Um, So I just want to hear from you first. So what do you think of when you think of rest? Or have you seen good or bad examples of people resting? Just what are your thoughts? What do you see the world thinking about rest? Just pick one of those and answer them. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah. Yeah. So entertainment, me time is rest. Yep.
Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned um, about vocation, rest from vocation, uh, because we'll get into that, because there's different types of rest, and the main theme of resting from work as, a, as your provision is what we see in Scripture. So like when God gave the command to the Israelites to rest on the seventh day, it was do your work for six days, and that work provided for your needs. So you got your food from it, your shelter, you know, all the things you needed was from that work. So we could also define other things as work, like woodworking or my wife knits. That's work, and there's a product that comes out of it that's, that's useful. But um, it's not the work that you use for your provision, unless you're like a professional knitter maybe. Um, but if it's just a hobby, a lot of times we work in our hobbies, right? But that, that's different than working for provision, and so we'll talk about that through these few weeks. Um, yeah, great. Any other thoughts about rest? How we see it, how we do it? Good or bad examples? Bridget? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 A lot of good points in what you just said. Um, after the fall, we needed rest for sure um, because because work made us weary, right? And so God provided that rest as a command to the Israelites, um, but also there's a trust involved, right? So especially for the Israelites, he, he told them, rest even if you need to go harvest or plant, still rest. So he's saying, even though there's work to do, I still want you to rest. And also, you know, he prescribed the Sabbath years to the, to the Israelites, which they never did, um, never observed, but he told them, don't do anything to the land and just eat the food that comes out of it. Don't do anything. So imagine the trust that they had to have for God to provide for them when they knew how much toil it took them to make their fields produce, right? Um, so a lot of trust is involved. Great. Um, yeah, Greg? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that's that's been a feeling for us since the fall, right? Uh, there's always work we can do. Um, yet we're still supposed to rest. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, so let's 
get into the first part of the study for today, so how to conduct a faithful topical Bible study. Um, and so what do you think of when you think of a Bible, topical Bible study or a sermon? What do you think of when you think of that? First of all, do you think of that it's going to be a good sermon or a bad sermon? <laughs> it's a topical sermon. <laughs> Forget about what you see in this church. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so you think of a guy getting up. This is what I think about, too. A guy getting up that just wants to talk about something, and so he does it, and he grabs a few Bible verses along the way just to make it seem holy. Um, and so, of course, you can run into really bad theology if you do that. Um, the idea of eisegesis, where you're like reading your own ideas into the text instead of pulling the meaning from the text and then applying that to your life. Um, but, of course, we know that that's not always the case. You can do really good topical Bible studies um, and sermons. It takes a lot of work because you've got verses all over and you have to understand the context of every one of those verses versus when you're teaching through verse by verse in a book like the context stays the same as you go along, and so it's, it's easier in that sense. Um, so I've got four steps for faithfully studying a, a topic in Scripture, and so we'll go through those. So step one is to select a topic that Scripture addresses in multiple places. So selecting a topic, <clears throat> that's the first, the first step. And so this should be pretty easy, um, especially because God calls us to be meditative, Right? He, he calls us to read his word and then think about it. And so when we do that, it brings up questions, or it should. So, you know, I read this in the verse, what does the rest of the Bible say about that? For example, that might be a question you have. Or you see your brother or sister in Christ doing something, and you're like, I don't, I don't know if that's right. Can we do that? Let's, what does Scripture say about that? And so you'll want to look through all of Scripture and see what it says. And so... That's how topics will come to mind, right? Because we're thinking about what God's Word says, and we want to know what it says, and we want to live by what it says. And so because of those things, we should always be, be thinking along these lines, right? What does Scripture say about a topic? Um, so if Scripture does address our question, we should go and learn what it says. Um, and there'll be multiple verses that we find. And so... This information is spread out across all of Scripture. Um, and so for, for our topic of rest, we'll kind of take that as an example as we go through these steps. Um, the topic could be defined through a series of questions kind of like this. So what does Scripture define as rest? How should we rest as Gentile believers in the church? Are there commands for us to rest? Are there commands to Israel to observe the Sabbath extended to us? Um, are there principles in the scriptures that we can apply to our own rest? So these are all questions that we could have kind of underneath our topic that we're hoping scripture can, can answer. Um, and some of these questions, probably as I read them out, you thought, I know the answer to that one. Oh, I know the answer to that one. Um, and so we usually come to the text to study already thinking that we know the answer somewhat at least. And so there's a few cautions that we should have kind of as we, as we humbly come to scripture to answer our questions. So first, remember that the Bible might not answer your topic directly. Um, so for example, you might want to know what the Bible teaches about abortion. If you just do a word study for that word, you won't find it because that word's not in scripture. Um, but yet scripture does address the topic. And so you'll have to expand your search, your keyword. You'll, you'll have to look at other, other things to find your answer for that. Um, and also apply principles 
to the topic that might not be related directly. Um, so remember that the Bible might answer your topic directly. The next caution is remember that your initial thoughts and own answers could be wrong. Um, so this can be a, um, a situation where, and we've probably all done this, where we might give someone some counsel, and later like, I'm pretty sure that the Bible said, says what I said, but let me, let me go look and just make sure. And um, so you're already coming with, you're really wanting it to back up what you said, right? Um, another situation is if we made a decision based on some biblical principle, yet we weren't very diligent to kind of review it beforehand. And so after the fact, you go back and you try to see what it says. So both of these situations could be, if we're not humble enough to submit to God's word, an example of where we, again, read in our own ideas into God's word instead of letting it um, inform our, our ideas. Um, and then the third thing, the third caution here is to remember the goal. Um, understand the mean, to, and this is the goal, to understand the meaning of God's word and be changed by it. So to understand the meaning of God's word and be changed by it. We all want God's word to change our thoughts, our desires, our attitudes, and our actions um, to be conformed to Christ. We want him to be glorified in our response to his word. So remember James 1, 23 through 25, it says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So we want to do what verse 25 says. We want to look intently at God's word as we study a topic and abide by what it says and do what it says. So that's step one, identify a topic. Um, the next step is to conduct a keyword study. Conduct a keyword study. Um, so for our topic, the keyword's pretty easy, rest. Um, we all probably know that that word occurs a few times in the Bible. Um, in fact, if you do a word study of rest in the NASB, it occurs 339 times uh, throughout Scripture. Um, and so you can use a few different tools to do this. You can use Logos if you have it. Also, there's blueletterbible.org, which is free online, and you can do, do that in there as well. So you can do um, English word searches. You can do Hebrew or Greek word searches as well. And it has a lot of really cool tools for free. Um, so what you'll find, though, as you start going through this list of verses is that some of the verses aren't relevant to your topic, even though the word's in there. So I'll give you an example. So... Second Chronicles 35:26 says, "Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion is written in the law of the Lord, and his acts, first to last, behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel and Judah." So the beginning of this verse, now the rest of the acts of Josiah, what does rest mean there in that verse? Yeah, the, the remainder, what's not in this book somewhere else. That doesn't really apply to the rest that we're talking about, right? We're talking about rest from work, rest because you're weary. And so we just kind of discard that verse and go on to the next one. So as you go through these verses, you'll, you'll weed out the ones that don't relate to your topic. So now let's look at uh, the first verse in the Bible, if you do this word search, that has rest in it, and that's Genesis 2, 2 through 3, so you can turn there in your Bibles. And we'll kind of be coming back to this verse throughout this morning as we kind of talk about how to do a topical study. So Genesis 2, 2 through 3 says, By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his works which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So in this case, what does rest mean, or rested in these verses? Yeah, so he stopped working. That's what the word means here. <clears throat> so th- these verses are related to our topic, so we follow this verse away in our good bin. We'll come back to it later. <laughs> um, we might make some notes about it. Um, and as we go, compiling a list of all the verses, um, we'll also need to watch out for other related words that aren't rest, but that still relate to our topic that we should probably understand if we want to get a f- full view of what God's word says about it. Um, so there, are there any other words in these two verses that you think might be important to understand as we think about rest? Yeah, Mark? Right. Yeah, and so Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews 4 talks about that too, how God finished his creative work. Yeah, and so yeah, that's a good point. So that's something we can make a note of as we go through that verse. Patrick? So any other keywords in these in these few verses that are important? Yep. Work. Yeah, work. <laughs> um, and we'll talk about that later today. So work for sure is an important concept to understand, to understand rest. Yeah, definitely. Seventh. Um, so we know that God commands Israelites to rest on the seventh day. It's a, it's a theme that we need to look at Scripture help us understand rest, um, and then also Sabbath. It's not in these verses, but you'll quickly see, as you're going through verses on rest, that Sabbath is another word, another concept that we need to understand. Um, so as you see, you know, your, your work is going to expand. So if you look at seventh, it occurs 124 times in the Bible. Work is 564 times. Sabbath is 171 times. So there's a lot of stuff to go through and to, to understand. And, you know, and as you're reading through these verses, you're trying to say, okay, is this, is this verse relevant? I'm going to keep it. If it's not, I'll discard it. And, and you, you build up kind of a database of verses that you're going to use to help you understand the concept. Okay, so that's the second step, do a keyword study. The third step is to work to understand the meaning of each text. So whenever Brian taught through uh, how to study your Bible, he talked about the inductive method of studying, and so that's what we can do here as well. So does anyone remember the three steps of the inductive method? Yeah, observation, interpretation, and application. And so we'll talk about those three steps. So observation is really we, we take a look at the verse and we observe it. We ask questions, we um, look for patterns and things. So we can look for words that are repeated or comparisons in a verse. We can look for linking words, so and or but. We can note time and place and chronology. So. Um, like then, for example, would say that something happened after something else. Uh, mark terms of conclusion, so therefore or so. 
Um, you can note and read all the cross-references that are listed in the margins of your Bible as well for that verse. Um, write down any questions you might have, for example, like the one Mark brought up, so you can write that down for that verse. And then also, uh, memorize and meditate. So a lot of times when you're, when you're studying something often, it's going to kind of get stuck in your head because you're spending a lot of time with it. So the nice thing about that is that that means you can think about it when you're not sitting down with your Bible to study. You can think about it at work when you're walking to lunch or, or whatever. Um, and this is really helpful because you can just mull it over in your mind and think about it. And that's something that we need to do. Um, so again, let's take Genesis 2, 2 through 3. So if, you're, if you turned away from there, turn back there. And let's do some observation on this text. So first, are there any repeated words? Yep, seventh occurs three times. Work occurs three times. Yeah, rested as well. God, yeah. <laughs> yep. So these are all likely important words if they're repeated, so we need to make note of that. How about any linking words? Yeah, then. Yep. Because it tells us why why he did something. And is there as well. Uh, how about any cross-references? Does your Bible list some cross-references for these verses? Yeah, like a whole lot? <laughs> okay, mine just had three, so I'll just read those then. So Exodus 28 through 11 is one of the cross-references. So this is God's command to Israel to observe the Sabbath, um, as well as a later verse in Exodus, and then Hebrews chapter 4, which is about the believer's eternal rest. And the author of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath there. Um, so how about time and place of this account? What do, we know about, what do we know about it? And this kind of gets into the broader context of, of Genesis. So what, what in Genesis 1 through 2 is going on in these two chapters? The, the big picture. Yeah, it's an account of God creating everything, right? And so we have that broader context, and then if we kind of hone in on these two verses, um, it describes kind of the seven days of events and really breaks it up into... What he did on the sixth day is what he did on the, the seventh day, right? Um, so are there any other questions that this text might bring up that you can make a note of and investigate later? Yeah, Mark, you're full of questions. Yeah, so what Mark's talking about is really important because, and we'll get into this in the interpretation step, but when we're trying to understand the meaning of a text, you want to take into account the author and the original, the original audience because that's who's receiving the message, so it meant something to them, and what did it mean? And so that's really the question that we ask. 
Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, that's the question I had down here too. So why did God rest? Um, doesn't does he have to rest? I mean, Scripture tells us that he doesn't. That he never gets weary or tired. So why is he doing? Why is he doing this? Does anybody have any ideas? Say that again, Tammy. Yeah. Okay. So to set a pattern for people. So that could be a reason. Um, I'll read you uh, another verse. So this is actually um, one of the cross-references. So if, if we read this cross-reference, it gives us a little bit more information about God and his rest. So Exodus thirty-one seventeen says, It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. That's kind of interesting too, right? How is God refreshed if he doesn't get weary or tired? And by the way, that's in Isaiah 40, 28 that we know that, that he doesn't become weary or tired. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely the idea that God knew man needed rest, and so that's why he gave the Sabbath to them, um, so that they could rest. So there's definitely that idea. As far as God, God resting and being refreshed, I, I do think that a part of that is him stepping back from his creation and looking and saying that it's good, that, that was, he enjoyed that, that that was, could be what this refreshing means. Um, so yeah, so that, that kind of gives you an idea of take a text, you, you observe it, you ask questions, you look at cross-references, and you're just gathering all this data, right, about, about the verses. And so after you're finished with your observation, you move on to the interpretation um, step of the inductive method. And so, again, when we're interpreting, we're trying to understand the original meaning um, to the original audience. And so what was Moses trying to get across to Israel when he wrote this to them. He wrote it probably, he wrote in between the Exodus um, from Egypt and, and going into the Promised Land. And so that can kind of help with understanding uh, what the meaning is. So as we go through interpretation, these are some of the things that we're looking for. So I need to know the author, understand the original audience. Uh, knowing the genre can help. Um, so if it's uh, narrative, wisdom literature, poetry, prophecy, gospel, or an epistle, um, we need to know the broad context of the verse. So this, this broadens out or increases the time that you spend when you're doing a topical study because you have to do this for every verse to make sure you're interpreting it right. Um, look up keywords or difficult words um, in, in an English and original language lexicon that can help. So blueletterbible.org has this as well. So you can go and find the Strong's number if you're familiar with that, and you can see what that word means. Um, and really, we're looking for the main idea of, of the verse. And so we can do something called sentence stripping, which we'll talk about. 
So let's practice these things again on, on Genesis 2, 2 through 3. Um, <clears throat> so we already noted that the author is Moses, that he wrote this um, when Israel was, was wandering. Um, what's the genre of Genesis? Historical narrative, right? It's a narrative. Um, any key or difficult words that we might want to look up? Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I've heard people say that, too. Normally, they say that when they're trying to say that um, the earth wasn't created in six literal days, the earth is really old. Um, but when I think of Hebrew poetry, I think of, like, what do we think about? What's Hebrew poetry in Scripture, right? Psalms. And when I look at the Psalms, when I look at Genesis, they, they're not the same. So I don't know. I, I don't put much weight to that. Um, but I'm also not a Hebrew scholar, so <laughs> someone else might be better to answer that than me. Um, okay, so, you know, as we go through these, the words in these verses, most of them are pretty straightforward. We might want to look up a word, maybe sanctified, to make sure we understand what that means, um, that he set it apart. But if we want to get to the meaning of the text, what it, what's good to do is identify the subject and the verb, and really reduce the sentence down to, to just those, like what's the main idea? Let's, let's remove for a while the supporting phrases in the verse and just get to the main idea. So to help us do that, we can look for the, the main subject and the verb. So if we were to do that in these verses, what's, what's the main subject? Yeah, God. So right away, this is telling us that these verses are telling us something about God. He's the subject of these verses. So the next thing to look at is the verbs. So what are the verbs in the, these two verses? What's that? Completed, yep. Yeah. Completed and rested, yep. Yeah. Blessed. Finished, done. Made. What's that? I missed it. Declared, yeah. Sanctified. Anyone notice that one? <clears throat> yeah, so there's there's lots of verbs, and some of these verbs are in supporting phrases, right? Like there's a comma, and then, so like, for example, after the word because. So that's telling us something about what about the verb right before that. Right? He, he blessed and sanctified. Why? Because of the following things. So if we're looking for the main idea, we can remove that phrase after that because it's, it's supporting the main idea, right? Um, so if you kind of do that, you, you really get this. God completed and rested. Then, right, there's this, this linking word, God blessed and sanctified. And so then as you do that, like this, this, this is telling you what God did, the main ideas of the verse. And so then you can ask questions like, what did God complete? What did God rest from? What did he bless? When did he bless it? Why did he bless it? What did he sanctify? Why did he sanctify? 
And I picked all these words because this verse answers all those questions about these verbs. And so you can go through the supporting phrases and and answer those questions. So a lot of times if you'll see like a a preacher preaching, he'll he'll have a main idea and then he he has his subpoints are actually these supporting phrases. So he'll have, um, why did this happen? Um, What caused it to happen? You know, these things. And so a lot of times outlines are built on these, these supporting phrases which is what we want to do, right? We want, we want our outlines to be from the text. Um, so after we do this sentence stripping, it's pretty easy to, to pick out the main idea and the meaning. Um, and in this verse, it's that God finished creating and rested, then he blessed and sanctified the seventh day. And so this is telling us how God created and what he did, what he did for the, the seven days. Um, so that's the first two steps of the inductive method. And so then we can um, go about applying the verse. And um, I want to kind of, I, I want to combine this with uh, systemization. And so a lot of times when you're doing a topical study, it's good to apply verses in chunks. It's like you could look at all the verses in Genesis about rest, or all the verses in the first five books about rest, or all the verses to Israel about rest. And then you can make application. And a lot of times that's easier because, I mean, if you heard all the verses we had to read through, it's over 500, 600 verses. So it's easier to, to understand the meaning of the verses than categorize them and then make application. And so what this is is actually systematic theology. And so this, this fourth and final point for how to do a faithful topical study is to systemize all data and make application. Um, so after you've read all the relevant passages, determine their meaning, meaning it's time to systematize them and make application. Um, And to help with this, you can ask questions, again, of the group of texts. And this, again, is coming from um, the inductive method. So ask, does the text point out my sin? Does it command me to do something? Does it teach me something about God's character or his works? That is the case here in Genesis 2. Um, Does it teach me something about myself, about human nature, or why I do what I do? Is there a promise? Is there encouragement, et cetera? So you can ask these questions to help you understand the application. So you'll combine and categorize verses into a concise, systematic theology of your topic. So that's our aim. At the end of the five weeks or so that we're going to do this, I want us to have a systematic theology of rest so that we know what the Bible says about it and we know how it applies to us. And so I went through a few different definitions of systematic theology, and the one I liked the most was from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology book because it's simple, and it it really hits on the two main um, points of why we do systematic theology. So he says, systematic theology is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? So you see there's two, in, in the question, there's these two things. What does the whole Bible teach us, right? So we want to know what all of God's Word teaches us about it. And then, what does it teach us today? So we want to know how it applies to our life. So what do we do because of what God's Word says about this? So that's what systematic theology um, will tell us. And so many of you probably have systematic theology books at home, um, use them as a reference book, or maybe you've, you've read through them. But you take topics like the systematic theology of salvation, right, which is called soteriology, So it takes all the verses in the Bible about salvation 
and it combines them and summarizes them and applies them to us. And so it tells us things like why do we need salvation, how and who accomplished it, how we should respond to it, what's the outcome of our response. It describes all these things about the topic. Um, and so that's, again, we want to do something like that for rest. Um, and so that's what we'll do. Well, I'm thinking it'll probably take about five weeks, but we'll see <laughs> when we're done. Um, and so I hope that just these four points help you if you decide that you want to kind of see what the Bible says about something and how do I apply it to my life. I hope that these kind of four points help you as you work through that on your own. <clears throat> okay, so the, the next thing we want to do today is to talk about the relationship of work to rest. And again, we already saw in our verse in Genesis 2 that work is related to rest. Um, rest. In, the, in these verses, is the ceasing of work. So then we have to ask ourselves, what's work? What, we want to make sure that we have a proper view of work as we get into talking about rest. Um, so this isn't, you know, these, this isn't meant to be an exhaustive theology of work What I'm going to talk about. It's really just highlights um, things to keep in mind about our work and, and how we should work so that we can rest properly. Um, so what are some common views about work that you guys have observed. So kind of we'll do it again. You know, good work and bad work or good examples and bad examples of work. What have you seen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Limit work to just your job. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so there's there's a lot of wrong views about work for sure. And um as you get into these points, I've got six of them. Um we'll hit on a lot of the things that you guys talked about. Uh so the first point is that work and rest are both good. Work and rest are both good. So how do we know this? Well, first God worked and God rested. Um God did both of these things. And he tells us that they're good, right? All of his creation, everything was good. And so we learn that from the verse that we just read, Genesis 2, 2 through 3. Um, and after he worked, he rested, he stopped his work. In fact, he was refreshed even. We talked about that in Exodus thirty-one seventeen. 17. Um, so, so God both worked and rested. So that's one of the ways we know that work and rest are both good. But also, God commanded man to work before the curse. So we see that in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and 2, 15. So God commanded man to work by ruling and filling the earth and to go cultivate and keep the garden before the fall. So this was before man was cursed with sin. This was before work was so hard. We see God telling man to work. So right there, that answers one of our questions, right? That work is good. Work isn't bad. It's not evil. Um... So Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and then let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So you see here the command to rule and fill the earth that God gave man. 
And then Genesis 2.15, he puts man in the garden and says, cultivate it and keep it. So it's good for man to work. So rest and work are both good for God to do it and for man to do them. So the second point, so that was the first point, work and rest are good. And the second point is that after the fall, work became very hard and rest was needed by men. So we all know what happened after the fall. Um, after Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate the fruit from the tree that God told them not to eat, after that came the curse. So God cursed the serpent, and then he cursed Eve, then he cursed Adam. And that's an important distinction. When he gives the curse of hard work, who, who did he give it to? He gave it to Adam. Um, and he says in Genesis 3.17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the reason that's important that he gave this to Adam is that it's, it's Adam's main responsibility to work and provide. It's his responsibility to provide for himself and for his family. And so he bears the responsibility. Um, his wife can help. I mean, God gave Eve as a helper, right? Um, but it's man's responsibility to make sure that he and his family are taken care of. Um, so what is the fact that work is now hard due to our attitude about it. Um, we talked about this a little bit already. <laughs> we might think it's evil and not want to do it at all. Uh, but what else? What, what, what do you see in the world or even with believers, Patrick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing to remember. It's our fault, <laughs> right? It, it's, it's Adam and Eve's fault. On God's fault. Even so, you know, the, the command to do the work is still there. Yeah. And we just come and do it the way we're given as we see fit. And that's so I think that you said that you point out that you see this. Um, not like that's often a couple of departures from where it just gets out of hand all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and we're, we're living in it now, right? Even though we're not farmers and tilling the land, our work is still hard. I think about this a lot of times when, when like, everything's breaking at the house. Like, the fridge is broken and the, the lawnmower's broken. It's like, everything's breaking. <laughs> it's because, I mean, it's the curse. Everything's breaking because of the curse. Um, so work is always hard. It, it's always hard, no matter what we do. Um, and it's like that because of, because of the fall, because Adam and Eve sinned. Um, so because work became so hard, it's easy for us sometimes to despise it, um, for us to want to reprieve. In fact, in a little bit later in Genesis 5.29, um, when Noah, when Lamech has Noah, this is what Lamech says. Uh, now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So he's hoping that his son will help him work, that he'll give him a reprieve that he'll be able to rest a little bit. So it just shows you, I mean, people felt, felt how hard work was. They wanted rest. They wanted rest from their work. 
Um, so work is now hard, but it's still good. Um, we know this from Ephesians 4.28, for example. Um, and it's still the main normal way that God provides for us through our own work. Um, and it's work that we still need rest from. And so I think that's important to note, too, that our work is the main way that God provides for us. He provides for us through our work. Um, so a lot of times people might not want to work and expect some miracle from God that he just he, he provides for their needs without the normal way that he works, right? Our, our work is a provision from God so that we can provide for ourselves and get what we need. Um, so the third point about work is that God expects us to work to provide. So God's expectation is that for most of our time, we are working to provide. It's a significant portion of our life, right? Six days you are to work. That's what he told the Israelites. Um, we see the same expectation in the New Testament, basically, that you work to eat, right? In 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat either. Um, so our work is the way that God provides for us. Our, the fourth point here is that not working or resting too much leads to poverty and need. And so you really see this in Proverbs 6 um, when it talks about the sluggard. So Proverbs 6, 6 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. So the sluggard is someone who's, who's lazy to the point of like a moral failure. Even unbelievers can look and say, this, this is not right. He shouldn't be doing this. Um, and it's interesting to note verse 11 um, he says that there's two things that come to the slugger, poverty and need. And it's interesting the way that he says it comes to them. So poverty comes to them like a vagabond, so just a wanderer. So it just kind of wanders in unexpectedly. So the sluggers, he, he, he can't put it together. Why am I in poverty? Why don't I have what my neighbor has? You know, there's almost a sense of entitlement. I should, I should just have these things. Why do I need to work for them? And the same with the need. It's like an armed man. So it's, it's urgent. It's forceful. Like if he doesn't get what he needs, he's going to die. Um, so it's just the, the surprise of the sluggard that they can't see the result of their action um, is just a, another characteristic of them. And so uh, not working or resting too much is, is not good, right? Um, that's what the sluggard does. You know, how long will you lie down? When will you arise from your sleep? So don't rest too much. So the fifth point contrasts that. So we don't rest too much, but we don't work too much either. And so if you look in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, you can see that overworking has no profit. And really the idea here is that you're overworking to enjoy and idolize um, the, the product of your work. Um, instead of taking enjoyment in the things that God's given you. So this, this going over working to provide for yourself, right? You're working because the, the, the product is an idol for you. And so uh, Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes 2.4. He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. And if you jump down, so between there and verse 11, he just talks about all the different things that he did. 
Verse 11 says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. And if you jump down to verse 18, it said, he says, Thus I hated all the food of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool? Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. So he's saying, you know, I, I work, I get all this stuff. He has everything, but he finds no fulfillment in it. And furthermore, he's not really going to be able to use it that long. When he dies, it goes to someone else, and who knows if they're going to take care of it or not. Um, so working too much to increase wealth, like over-provision, and looking for enjoyment <clears throat> in that, in the, the product of your work, um, is vanity. It's not good. It has no profit. And so if a little bit further in this chapter in Ecclesiastes 2.24, he kind of tells you instead what you should do. So there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? So he's saying God should be where we get our enjoyment. We understand that he's the one that provides these things for us. We thank him for it. and We get enjoyment in that instead of the the product of our work, our wealth that we may be built up. So that brings us to the the last question, so we shouldn't rest too much, we shouldn't work too much, so then how much should we work? That's the question, how much should we work? Um, and I've got four, four points here that we'll go over pretty quick. Um, so the short answer is you need to work the right amount. But the problem is that it's, it's different for everybody. There's some subjectivity in this as well. Um, so here are four principles. So first, we should um, work enough so that we can provide for ourselves and our family. So First Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we should provide for ourselves and our family. Next, we should work enough so that we give to those in need. So Ephesians 4.28 says, He who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So this idea that we're working a little bit more than to just provide for us and our family. We also want to have enough to give, to bless other people. Also, we should work enough so that you can give good gifts to your kids and cherish your wife. You might have to bear with me a little bit on this one, but the idea is that we should want good for the people in our family. We should want them to be comfortable. And so I know, and Bridget and I struggle with this too, like how much do we give to our kids? Um, for a few Christmases, it was like we're going to give them a book, some clothes, and then something else. <laughs> and it was like I look back on that and it's really sad <laughs> um, because I really want to give them good gifts, something that they'll enjoy, but also we do it wisely. And so there's this idea in Matthew 7, um, and, and the, the main idea in Matthew 7 is talking about how God gives us good gifts, and we should ask him. But there's something that Jesus says in here that I think is noteworthy. So he says in Matthew 7, 9, uh, What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So there's this idea of charity, 
God's charitable to us. He gives us good gifts. Um, we should do the same for our children. In one sense, we're modeling what God does. We're, we're showing them that God is a father who gives good gifts and loves you. Um, and also, we want charity, right, from people. We want charity from God. This last verse in verse 12 tells you, do however you want to be treated, treat others the same way. So we should be charitable as well. We should give good gifts to our children. And I'm not saying spoil them, but like our Heavenly Father who enjoys wisely giving us good gifts, we should do the same for our kids. And so again, that means you might have to work just a little bit more. Make sure you have enough to be able to do that. And the second um, verse here that teaches this is Ephesians 5, 28 through 30, and is about husbands loving your wives. So it says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. So this saying we should treat our wives like our own bodies. How do we treat our own bodies? Well, we nourish and cherish it. Um, and so that we should do the same for her. And so the idea here, the nourish is really the need, right? You make sure that we make sure we have enough to eat. You should make sure that your wife does as well. But then cherish goes beyond need. Cherish is comfort. It's about comfort. Um, the, it, it literally translated means keep her warm. <clears throat> but it goes beyond need to preferences and desires so we should work to reasonably meet those desires. Again, there's wisdom in this, you know. Um, but we should work so that we can do these things, so that we can cherish our wives, so that we can good give, good, give good gifts to our kids. Um, and the final point here about how much should we work is that we should work enough so that you can rest. <clears throat> so there's some principles in Scripture. So whenever God um, gave manna to the Israelites, he told them, don't go gather on the Sabbath. But what did they do the day before? They gathered double, right? So they, they planned for that rest. They had the food that they needed on, on that day. Um, so we should plan to rest. And we should also, I'm sorry, we should work so that we can rest. But there's also this idea of trusting God, and it's kind of what Hannah mentioned earlier. <clears throat> so God told the Israelites to rest even when there was work to be done. In Exodus 34, 21, he says, You shall work for six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. So even when they like really needed to go out in their fields and work, God's saying, no, still take that day and rest. And so he also, as I mentioned earlier, he was going to provide for them during the Sabbath year. So he, he told them not to do anything to your fields, let, it, let them lie. But yet you can go out and pick the produce and it'll be enough to feed you. So God was telling them, you, you don't work, but I'm going to provide. And so I think that we need to just consider these two things as we consider our rest, is working enough to rest, and both understanding that we should plan to rest by working enough, and also all our work doesn't have to be done to rest. It kind of goes to what Greg was saying earlier, too. Trust God that he will provide for us. So I hope these principles about work will help as we begin looking into the Bible about how we should rest. Um, and also I hope that the, the Bible study tips are helpful for you if you ever want to do a topical <clears throat> Bible study. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us and we can be dismissed. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it tells us how to live, that you describe yourself, that you uh, also are such a good God, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that 
you're concerned about um, the frailty of our bodies, how work makes us weary, and then you've provided um, for us <clears throat> in rest so we can be rejuvenated. And I pray that you help us to learn a lot through this study, especially um, how rest and what your word says applies to us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.